continue this morning in our series through the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 8. And we've been studying from verses 30 to verses 36 over the last couple of weeks. And this morning we pick up at John 8 verse 37. And we're going all the way to 59, which is the end of the chapter. So a bit of a larger section that we've been dealing with over the last couple of weeks. Listen as I read John 8, 37 to 59. It is Jesus speaking here in the beginning, and he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love him. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? When the prophets died, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we 
ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we look at this section of Scripture. We pray that you will profit us by it, that you will help your people to grow, that you will draw to faith those who are not yet trusting in you, that you will glorify yourself. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. I used to work for a Ukrainian man named Vasil. And my uh, heritage, I, I was born and raised in Canada, but my heritage is Danish, not Ukrainian. And there's Germany and Poland and the Baltic Sea in between Ukraine and Denmark. But nevertheless, apparently, uh, I have some Ukrainian resemblance because Vassal and I look extremely similar. Either that or he looks somewhat Danish. I don't know which it is, but Vassal and I look so similar that one of Vassal's supervisors mistook me for him when I went into the office one day and he started talking to me about Vassal's business. I said, I'm not Vassal. And several of our clients uh, mistook me for him as well. They had met him before and not me, and when I went to make deliveries, they started talking to me as if I was him. On a few occasions, I was delivering medical products to a Ukrainian retirement home in Toronto, and people approached me and started speaking Ukrainian to me. I suspect that they thought I was Vassal too, but I really have no idea what they were saying, so I can't verify that. In that case, there was a resemblance, but there was no family connection. So you couldn't call it a family resemblance. And sometimes the opposite happens. There is a family connection, but very little resemblance. You might not know that two people were related unless they told you from time to time. Uh, this happens. You can probably think of cases where one or more of the members of the family look very different from some of the other members of the family. However, in today's passage, though it's not always true in our world in terms of other people, in our passage today, we are told that there is always, always, always a family resemblance, spiritually speaking. The main issue in the passage before us this morning, this lengthier section that I read, we've been kind of setting it up, uh, introducing some of the themes, exploring some of the themes that are active in this uh, chunk of scripture over the last couple of weeks. And the foundation is laid and we're ready now today to tackle the remaining uh, portion of John chapter 8. And the main issue before us in this remainder is paternity. Paternity, not eternity, but paternity. Who is the father of the people to whom Jesus is speaking? So let's identify who their father is, and then we will make some applications. And we may identify the father of the people to whom Jesus is speaking by process of elimination. We see first in verses 37 to 40 that their father is not Abraham. By way of review, Abraham was biologically their father, yes. Jesus concedes as much in verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And over again in verse 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So Jesus 
concedes and acknowledges that in one sense they are Abraham's children. They are biologically descended from Abraham. Well, as we saw last week, in another sense, they are not Abraham's children. In verse 39, Jesus says, If you were Abraham's children, implying that they actually are not, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. As we saw last week, those who are children of Abraham in a spiritual sense share the faith of Abraham. I will remind you of what we looked at last week, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ's, that is, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're not going to rehash everything that we looked at last week, but what we see is that there are essentially two families which descend from Abraham. There is just the biological family of Abraham, but then there is what we might call the family of God. Those who are sons and daughters of God along with Abraham. Now you can be biologically a son or a daughter of Abraham without actually being in the family of God. Which is why Jesus could say, as he did last week, yes, you are Abraham's children in one sense, but you are like slaves in God's house as opposed to sons in God's house. You are not actually in the family of God, even though you are in Abraham's family biologically. And so there are these two families, the biological family of Abraham and the spiritual family of Abraham. And these people are biologically in Abraham's family, but not spiritually in Abraham's family. They are not sons of Abraham in that spiritual sense. Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. In other words, if you were in Abraham's spiritual family, if you were in the family of God, which Abraham was in, then you, like Abraham, would have faith. It is those who are of faith who are blessed together with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3.9. You would believe in the Christ. If you are Christ's, then you are children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, you would have faith, and the works which proceed from faith would proceed from you. James chapter 2, 21 to 24 says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. 
Well, explaining the full meaning of that passage would be a sermon for another day. But what I want to point out to you here is simply that Abraham had a faith that worked. And this is what Jesus means when he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. If you were spiritual children of Abraham, you would be people of faith. You would be men and women and boys and girls of faith. And that faith would work. That faith would look like something. It would have an effect on your lives. Remember, remember. In verse 30 of John chapter 8, it says, As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So there was some profession of adherence or acceptance of what Jesus was saying. And then in verse 31, Jesus, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And this whole discourse now is between Jesus and those who ostensibly believed in him. But what becomes clear is that they were false professors. They professed to be believers in Jesus, but they were not converted. They did not experience the new birth, as John chapter 3 says. They had not been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's glorious Son. These people were not living in the freedom of God from the guilt and the corruption of sin, but rather these people were still slaves of sin. As we will see later on today, as we've already alluded to over the last couple of weeks, these people actually had animosity in their hearts toward Jesus. They made blasphemous insults to Jesus in this passage. And by the time we come to verse 59, they are ready to kill him and they pick up stones to stone him. And so these people are not really Christians. These people are not really believers. They are not really, therefore, children of Abraham in the spiritual sense. Jesus is teaching them, if you were in Abraham's spiritual family, if you were sons and daughters of Abraham, spiritually speaking, not just biologically, but if you claim to have a share in the blessings and the promises that were given to Abraham, if you were recipients of those things and heirs of those things, if you want to share in the blessings of Abraham, or if you were sharers in the blessings of Abraham, you would be people of faith. And you would have works that flow from your faith. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. This is what Jesus means when he says that. What the gospel does is it changes people's legal status. It takes us from having a sentence passed guilty and punishment pending in hell at the end of our lives when, as the scripture says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. What would happen if we were outside of Christ is that we would die and we would appear before the judgment seat of God. God would pronounce us guilty and would send us to hell away from him forever for eternity. What happens in the gospel 
is that our record changes and we have on our paperwork something like this, guilty and yet pardoned. And so a pardon has been granted. There is no longer punishment pending. In a sense, not guilty. In a sense, innocent. But sometimes I prefer to stay away from that sort of terminology because the reality isn't that we go to heaven on our own merit because we're innocent. The reality isn't that we go to heaven on our own merit because we're not guilty. The reality is we were guilty, but Jesus satisfied the demands of the law on our behalf, bore our punishment, gave us his righteousness, and so though we were guilty, we are pardoned. And so we appear before the judgment seat of God. And God acknowledges, yes, you were guilty and corrupt in Adam, but my son has done everything necessary for your salvation. And so I, though I am the just judge, may also be the justifier of you, the ungodly, for Christ's sake. And so our record changes. There is a legal transaction that occurs. But what also happens in the gospel is that our nature changes. And there is an experiential change as well as a legal change which occurs. I want to read you the beginning and the end of Romans, a phrase from the beginning of and the end of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about, listen, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And I want to turn over to Romans 16 and highlight that same phrase appearing again. In Romans 16, beginning at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, listen, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. But what we see here is that this phrase appears like bookends to the epistle of, to the Romans. The obedience of faith right there in the beginning. The obedience of faith right there at the end. Now this could be strictly grammatically speaking this could be interpreted two ways. It could be interpreted as the obedience which is faith in other words, the obedience, namely, faith among all nations. But it could also be interpreted, grammatically speaking, like this. The obedience which stems from faith. The obedience which faith produces. Now, if you're familiar with the content of the book of Romans, I think it's better, and I think you would agree to say that it's better to interpret it the second way. Because what we see is very, very clearly the necessity of faith, the, the right response, the obedience that is required to the gospel is certainly faith. It is faith which justifies us. Faith is the means by which we receive the work of Christ for us, for our salvation. But Paul does not just stop 
at Romans 4 or 5, but goes on all the way through 6, 7, 8, through the rest, to show that we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and to live new lives. And so Paul certainly wants us to have faith, but then he wants us to offer up to God a whole lot of obedience on top of that faith. And so faith, though we are justified, Paul teaches us, by faith alone, Paul also very clearly insinuates throughout the book of Romans that the faith that saves is never alone. And that there is an obedience which ought to accompany faith and in fact stem from faith. And so Paul's goal is not merely just to get people to believe. He's not getting people just to walk the aisle, fill out a card, say the sinner's prayer. But Paul wants people to believe in Christ Jesus and to begin offering up to God the obedience which comes from faith. This is what all of Abraham's spiritual children do. This is what those who are blessed together with Abraham do. This is what those who are Abraham's offspring in a spiritual sense do. They believe in Christ Jesus. Those who are of faith are blessed together with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who belong to Christ, they are Abraham's offspring. And so the spiritual family of God is comprised of people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then offer up to God the obedience, which is the right response to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the truth about him and who he is, that he is the Savior, that he is the head of the church, that he is the lover of our souls, etc., etc. What would it look like if you really believed that? You would offer up obedience to God for the sake of Christ's name. This is what Jesus means when he says that if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But by way of contrast, instead of believing in the Christ, these people have hatred in their hearts toward the Christ. We see that throughout this section of John chapter 8. Jesus says in verse 37, as well as verse 40, you seek to kill me. We see that that's true in verse 59 as they pick up stones to stone him. So instead of having faith in Christ Jesus and offering up to God the obedience that is in keeping with that faith and which flows from that faith, these people reject the Christ. They are not, therefore, belonging to Christ, and they are not, therefore, Abraham's offspring. Instead, they have hatred in their hearts toward the Christ. And so it is clear, we discern first, that these people are not Abraham's children, spiritually speaking. They now begin to claim, in verses 41 to 43, that God is their father. But God is not their father either. This section starts with a blasphemous insult. We were not born of sexual immorality. This arises from the circumstances concerning Christ's birth. 
As Luke 3.23 tells us, it was supposed that Joseph was his biological father. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, how babies are conceived and born. It's obvious to any of us who are grown-ups. We understand how that works. And so, when Mary was found to be with child, people would have made certain assumptions. And when Joseph's family or friends asked him about their premarital interactions and Joseph said, we haven't been together, then what assumptions would people make? That Mary had been with someone else, of course. And so whether we're talking about fornication with Joseph or whether we're talking about fornication with someone else, the assumption that everybody would have made is that there was sexual immorality. And so here, paternity is disputed between Jesus and these people. And they come with a pretty low blow. We were not born of sexual immorality. So these folks hurl a blasphemous insult at Christ and then proceed to claim in the second half of verse 41 that God is their father. We have one father, even God. Jesus responds by explaining a universal principle. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. This is the way that it works, always. This is universal. If God were your father, you would love me. Unity between the Father and the Son is a major theme of John's Gospel. And that unity is corroborated by the entire corpus of the Scriptures. Jesus says in verse 42, I came from God, and thus I am here. That's the sense of it. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The storyline of scripture is something like this, that in eternity past, there was nothing but God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has never changed. Is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't appear in three successive modes, first as the Father, then as the Son, then as the Holy Spirit. There is no one person of the Trinity who is the real God and then others in subordination to him who came into existence later. So it's not as if there is an eternally existing Father and then a Son who was born later on and a Spirit who emerged later on. No. God, Father, Son, Spirit has always existed. As far back in eternity, as we could reach or conceive, there was God. And God created this world. God formed human beings. And these human beings were created with the capacity to obey or not to obey, to sin or not to sin. 
And we chose to sin. And we, Adam, plunged the whole human race into sin, misery. And this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, began unraveling to us and unfolding for us a revelation of a plan of how he was going to redeem fallen humanity, how he was going to save individual sinners, how he was going to organize them together to be a people, how he was going to redeem even the inanimate creation, and how he was going to make a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now God revealed this plan progressively, and so we know more detail about the Son and the Spirit in the New Testament than we did in the Old. But that's not to say that the Son and the Spirit were not in the Old. The Trinity is a clearer doctrine in the New Testament than it was in the Old, but it doesn't mean it wasn't latent in the Old and that we don't see clues and so on and so forth. We see in the Old Testament God revealing himself as one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so these Jews with whom Jesus spoke were strict monotheists. But what John unfolds for us in his gospel is that the coming of the Son from the Father, the coming of a Son who was with God and who was God, in no way means that there are two gods, but that this Son has dwelt with the Father and with the Spirit from eternity past as one God. And so there is this profound unity which exists between the Father and the Son. And John is unfolding these things in his gospel. John Owen said, many think there is no sweetness at all in the Father toward us, but what is purchased at the high blood, high price of the blood of Jesus. It is true, that alone is the way of communication, but the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. Eternal life is with the Father and was manifested unto us. The apostle writes in 1 John 1, 2, Owen goes on and says, Let us then, I the Father, as love, look on him not as an always lowering Father, but as one most kind and tender. Let us look on him by faith, as one that has had thoughts of kindness towards us from everlasting. After considering these things, the unity of the Godhead, the coming of the Son from the Father, well, in no way diminishing the strength and the integrity of the monotheism that had been revealed in the Old Testament. In view of these things, 
we return to this universal principle that Jesus has enumerated, and we find that it is self-evident. If God were your father, you would love me. How could you love one person with God that and hate another? How could you pick up stones to stone the son who was in the beginning with God and was God? So Jesus says in verse 43, you cannot bear to hear my word. It is an indictment of these people. They reject Jesus. And this rejection of Jesus' words, of Jesus' revelation, of Jesus' person, and this animosity towards him, and this refusal to come to him that they might have life, this is all evidence that God is actually not their father, as they claim. If God were their father, they would love and not blaspheme or disbelieve the son. And so as we work our way through the text, we've seen by process of elimination that Abraham is not their father and God is not their father either. Jesus has hinted at their father a couple of times. He says in verse 38, you do what you have heard from your father. And then in verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. Not Abraham, not God. You're doing what your father did. Abraham's not your father. God's your father. You would act a different way if Abraham was your father and if God was your father. No, no, no. You're doing what your father did. But Jesus hasn't actually named yet who their father is. But when we get to verse 44, Jesus names their father. You are of your father, the devil. So Abraham is not your father. God is not your father. The devil is your father. This is manifest by their responses to Jesus' teaching. Jesus has taught in this section that they are slaves to sin. You could look back at verse 34 and 35. To see that. Jesus has taught that he is from heaven. Jesus has taught that he came to set them free. Jesus has taught that his word is truth from God. Look back at verse 40. I want to highlight that. I have told you the truth that I heard from God. Therefore, verse 52. Whoever keeps Jesus' word will not see death. Verse 51 and verse 52. And as God's only begotten Son, as He who came from the Father, as He who was in the beginning with God and was God, He is greater than Abraham. They asked Him in verse 53, Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus answers that question. Before Abraham was, I am. They didn't miss that. You see, they got enraged when that happened, right? Verses 58 and 59. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. 
They didn't miss it. Jesus has taught them that they are slaves, but he is from heaven, come to set them free. He's bringing revelation from heaven that whoever believes it, receives it, will not see death. And he is, he is claiming that before Abraham was, as God's only begotten son, as the second person of the Godhead, he is greater than Abraham. This is what Jesus has taught. Their response, verses 37, 40, 41, 48, 59, all bear this out, they hate Jesus. They have animosity in their heart toward Jesus. They lie. They malign him. Look at this other, just almost unbelievable insult that they hurled at the Son of God. In verse 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This Samaritan phrase was basically a racial slur. I don't have to make a racial slur for you to understand how offensive that is. But you can imagine what one person of one race might say to a person of another race to demean them, to write them off as an insignificant or unimportant or lesser being. This is essentially what's going on when they call Jesus a Samaritan. On top of claiming, on top of the religious significance that Samaritans were those with syncretistic religious worship, as opposed to the Jews who fancied themselves as having pure, undiluted devotion to Yahweh. And then you have a demon. Here they are talking to the Son of God. And after saying, we were not born of sexual immorality, throwing a racial slur at him, on top of that, you have a demon. And then in verse 59, it all comes to a head as they pick up stones to throw at him. Jesus says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I want you to notice how these people responded to what Jesus said. And let's consider now how the devil responded to what Jesus said. In verse 44, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He is a liar and the father of lies. So, Satan's response to Jesus is that he hates him and wants him dead. Satan's response to Jesus is that he does not stand in the truth. What's a, what would be another, if I asked you to make a, uh, I don't know if synonym is the right word for a phrase, but let's not have a grammar lesson here. If I was to ask you for a synonym for the phrase, stand in the truth, what might come to mind? How about abide in the truth? Which is exactly what Jesus said, true disciples will do, back in verse 31. So, Satan hates Jesus and wants him to death, 
and does not abide in the truth and lies. This is what verse 44 tells us. Now let's look at, again, just to re refresh your memory of what I said a moment ago. What did these people do? They do not abide in the truth. They do not receive Jesus' words. They do not stand in the truth. Instead, they lie. They accuse Jesus of being born of sexual immorality. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and having a demon. They have hate and animosity in their hearts towards him and want him dead. You see, it's true what Jesus says in verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They are doing exactly what Satan does in response to Jesus. <coughs> they are like their father the devil, as, to be, as opposed to being like God, as opposed to being like Abraham. What Jesus is teaching us is essentially the same as we read elsewhere. By their fruit shall you know them. I said at the beginning, in earthly families, we don't always see a family resemblance. And sometimes we see a resemblance even though there's no family connection. Spiritually speaking, that is never true. There is always a family resemblance. And you don't see a lasting resemblance where there is no family connection. You see, maybe for a time, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, someone appears like a Christian, appears to believe, appears to take in God's word and receive it and abide in it. But after a while, they stop abiding. They do not stand in the truth. And so on and so forth. If you are Abraham's offspring, that will look a certain way. If you are children of God, that will look a certain way. If you are children of the devil, that will look a certain way. There is always going to be a family resemblance. Their father is the devil because they resemble him. This is how we know. This is the paternity test that they've undertaken. Who do you resemble? We know that their father is the devil. Jesus knew that their father was the devil because they responded like the devil responds to him. What use is this information to us? It is of use to us in order that we might recognize who is our Father. Who is the Father of those who profess faith around us? We see in this passage a paternity test applied to these specific people, but we see universally a universally applicable principle which may be applied to anyone. There will be a family resemblance. 
unbelievers will look something like the devil in terms of how they respond to Jesus. There will be some level of animosity in their heart toward Jesus. People who are unbelievers tend to deny this most often. Only the most blasphemous will outright say, oh yeah, I hate Jesus. I think Christianity is a scourge upon this earth. And I hope that the Christian religion is eradicated. I believe Jesus was an evil person who deceived and led people astray. Only the most blasphemous and hard-hearted will actually say that. Most people will say, I don't hate Jesus, I just don't believe in him. Some unbelievers prefer to be called non-believers because it's not as if they, uh, as they conceive of it, it's not as if there is some belief that they owe that they simply have not yet offered. It's just, they just don't believe. Like, am I like, for example, am I an unbeliever in unicorns or am I just a non-believer? You see what I mean? Unbeliever to some connotes that there should be something more, but there's not, that there's something lacking. Whereas non-believer is just more neutral. Like, I just don't believe. If you believe, it's fine for you, but as for me, I'm a non-believer, some people say. This is the way that it's most often put to us. It's not that I have anything against Jesus, it's just that I just don't believe in him. But at the root, those who do not believe in Jesus would rather live in a world where Jesus is not the King of Kings and is not the Lord of Lords. The message of the resurrection upsets them to hear that God has highly exalted Jesus and that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. If you press it, believe you me, you will find some animosity in the hearts of unbelievers. When you begin to press what this means for them, that you actually cannot remain neutral because Jesus has been raised and has been exalted and is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you will bow your knee either now willingly or you will be pressed into subjection later. And God will restore all things and his people will live with him in a new heavens and a new earth forever. But the wicked, the evildoers, which includes you, will be gathered out of that new heavens and that new earth. And you will be thrown into a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's where you will find yourself for eternity if you don't deal with the resurrected Jesus. When we bring it out so clearly with all of its implications, and what response is necessary to the Christian message of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the uh, impending return of Christ, we do find that there is animosity in the hearts of unbelievers, which is why so often when these things are preached, when these things are taught clearly and biblically, we are called intolerant, 
we are called bigots, we are called uh, unloving, whatever the case may be, because at the root, unbelievers resent this message. They might say, oh, it's true for you, it's just not true for me, you believe what you want, if that brings you peace, fine. But listen, if we were to speak up and say, no, 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 that option is not open. That option is not open. Either I'm wasting my life in something that is as sensible as devoting my life to unicorns. And I'm an utter fool. And you are not being compassionate by confronting me about my delusion and rescuing me from this deception so that I don't utterly waste my life. Or, I'm right, and you're wrong, because Christianity can't be both true and untrue at the same time. Therefore, you can't just have, as C.S. Lewis said, a mild reaction to Jesus and the gospel. This is either utterly pointless, or there's nothing more important. And when you bring that out clearly, when you press that upon people clearly, you will find animosity in the hearts of unbelievers toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find that there is not an acceptance of the truth. Until the Spirit grants that new birth, there will be excuses like Jesus was just a man born of Mary and Joseph. In other words, I don't believe the whole Holy Spirit thing. Again, they might not say it in so many words, but let's be honest, we all know what happened. He's Joseph and Mary's child, not the Son of God. Right? Isn't it the same thing as what they're saying in verse 41? We were not born of sexual immorality. It's the same conclusion, right? Or they will find other excuses. Oh, he's a Samaritan. Oh, he has a demon. Whatever else he might be, he's not the son of God. Come from heaven, bringing revelation that he has heard from God to set me free because I am a slave to sin. Whatever else they want to lie and say about Jesus, they do. And so they do not stand in the truth. They don't come to accept the truth and they don't stay in it. This is what unbelief is and does. It's the same thing, maybe varying in degree or specifics from these people and from Satan himself. But it's the same sort of thing. Animosity, lies, rejection, of the word of Christ. If this is you, you are a child of the devil. And this applies to so many who even name the name of Christ, you know. Because there is, there are so many who want some kind of Jesus, but not the true Jesus. And when they are confronted with the true Jesus, these same things pop up. Animosity, rejection. I was watching a thing from a liberal 
pastor. I don't know even what church or what denomination. I don't even know how I came across it, even on social media. It's, but it was like, I don't even understand really what it was. It's like, maybe this is like a thing these days. I don't know, but she was dancing around and pointing at little words that would pop up on the screen. I don't know if that's a normal thing or something unique to her. I don't know what normal, the latest social media trends, but she was, she was dancing around and pointing to these things that would pop up on the screen. And it was like, like if you don't believe, um, if you don't go to church, like that's fine. You don't need the church to be a Christian. If, if you uh, belong to another religion, or no matter what your beliefs or whatever, it's fine. God loves you just the way you are so on and so forth. So this is apparently a Christian pastor. So she would say she doesn't hate Jesus. And she would say that there's no animosity. And she would say that she stands in the truth. But if she were confronted with the biblical message, I assume she has been. I assume at least that she's read the Bible, I hope. What does she do with the parts that she doesn't like? Does she believe them or does she not stand in them? You see? This is what unbelief does. And whether it's openly unchristian unbelief or whether it is masked as Christianity, unbelief does not stand in the truth. Unbelief has animosity towards the truth. Unbelief comes up with all kinds of reasons lies why we will not believe the truth. That's what unbelief looks like. Conversely, if Abraham is your father, if you are a child of Abraham, spiritually speaking, if you are an heir of the blessings that God promised to Abraham, if the promises that God made to Abraham are to be fulfilled to you, you will be a person of faith. And you will do the works that Abraham did. This is what Jesus tells us. There will be a family resemblance. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Verse 39. You would be offering up, as James tells us Abraham did, the obedience of faith. To use Paul's term from Romans 1 and Romans 16. If you are Abraham's children, you will have faith in Christ and you will be doing the works which are commensurate with that, which flow from that. If you are God's children, you will love the Son as God himself loves the Son. And you will relish the idea of the Son of God being exalted and every knee bowing before him. That won't be something that causes you animosity. That won't be something that you disbelieve and reject. That won't be something that you anticipate and glory in that one day at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess you will have your father's heart toward that situation and that event you will receive the words that the son has brought to you from your father there will be a family resemblance this is what we see in this passage there is a surefire paternity test spiritually speaking there is a paternity test which always yields the correct result spiritually speaking and it is this 
who do you resemble? If there's animosity, unwillingness to believe the truth, and all kinds of reasons not based in fact why you won't believe the truth, you are a child of the devil. If you are a child of Abraham, you will be a man or a woman of faith and offer to God the obedience which comes from faith. You will do the works that Abraham did. If you are of your of God, if you are a child of God, you will love the Son as the Father loves the Son. You will have your Father's heart towards the Son. You will embrace the Son's mission from the Father to come into this world to seek and to save the lost. You'll recognize and appreciate your Father's heart, the spring and the fountainhead, as Owen said, of the gospel, to send the Son to reconcile you to him. You will embrace that gospel that has been revealed rather than rejecting the Son, as if you could have the Father but not the Son. There will always be a family resemblance. So let us give sober thought to our own professions of faith. If we are Christians, if we are Christians, let us endeavor to offer to God the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. If we are unbelievers, let us repent and come to Christ in faith. Believe who he says he is. Receive the revelation that he brings of God and of God's glorious plan of salvation. Let's sing about that glorious plan of salvation in response. His mercy is more.